Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and read our text this morning. As I mentioned last week, I'm doing two sermons just as a stopgap in between our series in Joshua and the series that I'm going to start in the book of John beginning next Sunday. Um, And I chose to preach through Revelation 13. We have read and preached, I've preached through the first vision in that chapter. And so we're going to pick up in verse 11. And we're going to read verses 11 through 18. And so let's begin by reading this passage of scripture together. This is God's holy word. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has a mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Amen. Let's That's the reading of God's word, and let me ask his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, as we come to this challenging text, we pray that you would open our hearts, the eyes of our heart to understand it, and that you would soften our hearts to receive its teaching. And we pray that you would use this text to equip us as your new covenant people to live lives faithful to Christ in this present evil age, amidst trial and tribulation. And we pray that you would enable us to persevere to the end, that we might take hold of the prize. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I began by establishing two things about the book of Revelation, which are important for understanding uh, and interpreting it properly. And so first... It is critical to realize that Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century who were being persecuted for their faith, and particularly by the Roman government. It was not written merely to predict certain events in the distant future, but rather to help these first century Christians uh, to understand their experience of tribulation and to encourage them to persevere in faith through it. So while the book does speak to the end of history, and its teaching applies to the church in every age, yet it should be interpreted primarily in light of the experience of those first Christian readers. Second, I pointed out the obvious fact that the book of Revelation is not like other literature that we have in the New Testament. 
It's part of a group of ancient texts that are now often called apocalyptic literature. And that simply means that these kinds of texts use visions that are filled with symbols to communicate its message. So a proper interpretation of Revelation requires determining what the symbols in John's vision represent. And fortunately, the symbols in one vision are often explained in later visions or even within the same vision. Plus, you also notice that there are multiple allusions to Old Testament passages in the visions of Revelation, which also shed further light on their meaning. Now, using these and other tools, Christian readers are able to gain an adequate understanding of the book of Revelation, while we recognize that some things in it will always remain somewhat obscure to us. So having established those general principles about how to understand the book of Revelation as a whole, let's focus in now on chapter 13. And the first thing we have to understand is how this chapter, chapter 13, relates to the previous chapter, chapter 12. So in chapter 12, John had a vision. In the vision, he saw a great red dragon, Satan, being definitively defeated by the child of the woman, particularly as it was taken up into heaven. In other words, by the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But though he was defeated and cast down to earth, the devil was given a short time during which he was allowed to wage war against the saints on the earth. Now, Revelation 13 consists then of two visions in which John sees two agents through which Satan carries out this warfare against the saints upon the earth. And the first vision we already saw, verses 1 through 10. And in this Vision, John sees the first agent through which Satan wages war against the people of God. And this agent is symbolized in the vision by a terrifying and terrible beast with seven heads and ten horns rising out of the sea. And I explained how this beast represented fundamentally human authority, which uses its power to intimidate people into giving it their allegiance instead of God, and then persecutes God's people, the church, for not doing so. Now, for the original readers, as we saw in chapter 17, this beast was the Roman Empire, which in that day demanded that everyone worship the empire, the emperor, as God, and persecuted Christians who refused to do so. But I also pointed out that since John saw this beast destroyed by Jesus in his vision of the final judgment in Revelation 19, well, we concluded that the beast could not represent the Roman Empire exclusively. Rather, it was intended to symbolize, as it were, beastly human power and authority wherever it appears, until the end of the age. John then left his Christian readers at the end of this vision with a challenge to respond to the vision 
by resisting the intimidation of the beast and refusing to compromise their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what the consequences. So that's as far as we got last week. Now this week, we're going to be looking at the second of John's visions, which is recorded for us in Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Now in this vision, John saw the second of two agents by which the dragon, that is Satan, wages war against the people of God during this short time that he has left before his final destruction at the end of the age. And this second agent of satanic opposition to God and to his people is introduced to us in verse 11. So if you look at the text, it introduces the beast with these words. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Now the first thing we see about this second beast in John's second vision is that it appears much less threatening than the first beast. Gone are the seven heads and the ten horns and the blasphemous names. And also we see that instead of rising out of the sea, which in the Old Testament was a place of chaos and danger and aggression, this beast is rising out of the earth. More stable, more secure, more familiar, more innocuous. And as I mentioned, whereas the first beast had ten horns and seven heads and blasphemous names on its head, the second beast, you see, has just two horns like a lamb. See, this second beast doesn't appear overtly hostile and menacing like the first beast did. Its game isn't violent coercion. No, its strategy is more subtle and cunning than that. For the first, this beast appears like a lamb, gentle, harmless. But notice that it goes on to say in the rest of the verse, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. This beast, you see, is a covert enemy. It appears to be as harmless as a lamb, but in reality it is as fierce and dangerous as a dragon. But in particular, the danger of this beast is in its words. It spoke like a dragon. Now, in what way were its words dangerous? Well, we had already seen in the previous vision in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon symbolized Satan in these visions. And Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John 8. His words are deceptive. They appear wise and true, but instead they lead people into sin and into error. One thinks of how that ancient serpent, the dragon, Satan, slithered into the Garden of Eden and subtly deceived Eve, calling God's, question, God's character into question, enticing her to rebel against God with lies. But though he made them appear sensible, the words of the devil were wickedly perverse and produced catastrophic consequences, not only for Adam and Eve, but for the whole human race. And as we see here in verse 11 of our text, this second beast, which John saw rising up out of the earth, appearing gentle and harmless, 
speaks like the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil. In other words, it uses deception to lead people into destructive error and sin. Indeed, we could go further to say that like the first beast, this second beast is an agent of the dragon, Satan, by which Satan wages war against the church. So you might say that this second beast represents the other side of Satan's two classic modes of attack. On the one hand, Satan attacks God's people with overt, violent opposition. So Peter famously said in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that type of satanic attack corresponds with the first beast coming out of the sea, which represented human authorities wielding uh, their power to intimidate people into giving them their, it, their ultimate allegiance instead of God and persecuting Christians who refuse to do so. But on the other hand, Satan also attacks God's people through means of subtle deception. You remember Paul's warning to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, where he said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and, quote, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And Jesus also warned of satanic strategy that would take this form when he said in Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So this other mode of satanic attack corresponds to the second beast in Revelation 13, who appears like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It represents those who use various kinds of deceptive activity to lead people astray into destructive error and sin, including the people of God. Incidentally, this is why later on in the book, you see this beast occur in other visions, Revelation 16, 13, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 10, and this same beast is described more specifically as the false prophet. So in contrast to the first beast from the sea, which represents overt, violent opposition to God and his people through use of force, This second beast from the earth represents subtle, covert opposition to God and his people through use of deception. And as we evaluate the nature of these two beasts, you might say it's likely that this second beast may be even more dangerous than the first beast simply because its attacks are less obvious. It appears harmless its strategy is not as easily recognizable. So what does the activity of this second beast look like? Well, look at verses 12 through 15. Let's read those. It says again, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Notice once again the way that the dragon and these two beasts form a sort of mock trinity. Just as the father sent the son into the world to do his will, so the dragon gave authority to the first beast to do its bidding. Just as the Holy Spirit comes to promote the glory of the Son, so this second beast, the false prophet, leads people to worship the first beast. Indeed, these two beasts, let's call them the beast and the false prophet, are in league with one another, you see in the vision. You can see this in the description of the activity of the false prophet, the second beast, which we just read in verses 12 through 15. The false prophet acts upon the authority of the first beast, seeks to get mankind to worship the first beast. And it does so in very specific ways in the vision. So first, in verses 13 and 14, we see that it performs great signs, false signs and wonders, designed to deceive people of the earth into worshiping the beast as God. So, just as God has often used miracles to bear witness to his word, think of Moses and his miracles, and think of Jesus and his miracles. Well, so often, so Satan often uses false signs and wonders to convince people of his lies. Think of Pharaoh and his magicians. That's the satanic strategy being attributed here to the second beast called the false prophet. Counterfeit signs and wonders meant to deceive people into thinking that the beast is worthy of worship. But then the vision becomes very specific, almost strangely specific. It says in verse 14 that the false prophet tells the people that it is deceiving to, quote, make an image of the beast. And in verse 15, we're told that the false prophet was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. What's going on here? Well, remember how I established from the beginning this principle that we should interpret the book of Revelation primarily in light of the experience of the first century churches in the Roman Empire to which it was written. Now, when that principle is applied here, these kind of strange details begin to make more sense. So, for instance, last week I established, I showed you from chapter 17, where the author gives us a huge clue. He says that the beast is seven mountains, and everyone would have known, oh, he's talking about Rome. That for the original readers, the beast, the first beast, was manifest in their day, and their experience, in the Roman government. I also pointed out, that by the time Revelation was written, the Roman emperor, Domitian, was actually demanding that everyone in the empire worship him as God. Temples were set up with images of Caesar where people were required to offer him worship. So, coming back to our vision, when it says in verses 12 and 13 that the false prophet, quote, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and all its inhabitants worship the first beast, well, 
To the original readers, that would have been obvious what he's talking about. It's, it's a reference to the activity of the cult of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. Rome had appointed officials throughout the empire to enforce the requirement of emperor worship throughout its territories. When in verse 14, it describes the false prophet ordering people to make an image for the beast to facilitate the worship of the beast. Well, the original readers would have understood what that meant. They would have likely understood that to be a clear reference to the many temples to Caesar built in their cities throughout the empire where they were required to go to the temple to offer a pinch of incense before the statue and say, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. But what about the references in reference in verse 15? Here's where you get a little farther out into the weeds. The false prophet seemingly using these deceptive tricks, such as making the image of the beast appear to breathe and speak in order to deceive people into worshiping it as God. Now, there is, I admit, a bit of mystery here, but it is interesting that if you were a Christian living in the first century and you were reading this, you may very well have understood exactly what he was talking about. One scholar of Revelation, G.K. Beale, explains it this way. He says that it was common practice in pagan temples of that day, including temples to Caesar, to use pseudo-magic tricks, things like ventriloquism, false lighting, to make the image in the temple appear to be animated by some supernatural spiritual force and promote the deception that it should be worshipped as God. That's even practiced in in some places in the world, in certain pagan temples, even down to today. And it could be that something like that is what is being symbolized here by these references in John's vision, although we can't be for sure. Finally, just as it says in verse 15 that the false prophet, the second beast, in other words, caused, quote, those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Well, that reflects the situation of early Christians. The original Christian readers often faced the threat of death, as well as many other things, if they would not pay homage to Caesar as divine in the local imperial temple. See, what I'm arguing is that just as the letter of Revelation itself clearly identified the first beast as the Roman government to the original readers, wielding its military power to enforce the worship of the emperor, Well, so here the text seems to be identifying the false prophet, the second beast, as the whole system of promoting the Roman imperial cult and even using not only coercion but also deception and trickery to promote the worship of Caesar as God throughout the empire. And in this way, just as John saw in his vision, the beast and the false prophet are in league with one another. However, Although the Roman imperial cult is almost certainly the most immediate fulfillment of this second beast, which John saw in his vision in Revelation 13, yet as we said concerning the first beast, as you move through the book of Revelation and you see visions of the end, well, you notice that this second beast, just like the first one, must be understood as an enduring enemy in every generation, Because when you look at the vision of the final judgment in Revelation 19, 20 through 21, well, the false prophet, this second beast, 
is also vanquished by Christ when he returns at the end of the age. So while the false prophet, as it were, was manifest to the original readers in the form of state-sponsored emperor worship, yet it manifests itself in various forms in every generation until he's vanquished by Christ at the end. And in this broader sense, this more fundamental sense, the second beast, the false prophet, seems to represent all those who propagate deception and false teaching throughout this age, which serve Satan's purposes to lead people into giving their ultimate allegiance, that is, their worship, to something or someone other than God and his son, Jesus Christ. And using every kind of deception to do so. We should also clarify that in this broader sense, the false prophet, the second beast, seems to represent the propagation of lies and deception both in the church and outside the church in the world. Let me show you what I mean. On the one hand, the very title of this second beast, when he is later called the false prophet, well, any reader of the Old Testament recognizes that language. This this points to false teachers within the church because that was a term, false prophet, that was used throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament to refer to people within the covenant community who claim to speak truth from God, false prophets, but really taught destructive and deceptive error instead. So, for instance, false prophets were rampant in the leadership of Israel at the end of the monarchy. The prophet Jeremiah spends chapters addressing the false prophets in Israel. They would claim to deliver messages to the leaders of Israel from God, But those messages led the nation down a path of destruction because they were lies. And in the New Testament, Jesus picks up the same language of false prophets in Matthew 7, 15, in his Sermon on the Mount. And he tells his disciples that, quote, many false prophets would arise among them, infiltrating the church. And he says that they will come disguised as believers, like wolves in sheep's clothing, but promoting destructive heresy. On the other hand, however, this second beast, the false prophet, must also refer to those outside the church who promote various false religions and philosophical teachings because Revelation 13, if you look at verse 12, it speaks in universal terms. Look what it says. It says that it describes this second beast as making, quote, the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast. Now, I already established that was most immediately fulfilled in Rome's promotion of emperor worship throughout the known world. But that's exactly the point. The false prophet represents not only the promotion of false teaching within the church, but also the promotion of false religions and philosophical systems in the world, like the imperial cult, which mimic the true worship of God, but lead people astray into idolatry. And what's important to see in all this is that just as the first beast, with the first beast, the goal of this second beast, the false prophet, is to lay claim to the ultimate allegiance, that is, the worship of human souls. Verses 16 and 17. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. You know, in the ancient world, slaves, soldiers, uh, priests in the various cults would be branded. They would be given a mark to signify their loyalty and their devotion to various pagan gods or other institutions. And it may be that this concept with the original readers would have been familiar with lies behind the symbolism of receiving the mark of the beast in John's vision. Regardless, however, if you look at it, the basic idea is pretty clear. When someone received the mark of the beast, it signified that they had given their loyalty, their worship, if you will, to the beast. And now they belonged to him in that sense. And this is a contrast to the saints who, a few verses later, look at chapter 14, verse 1. The saints are said to have the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And what does that signify? Their allegiance to him, their ownership by him. Now, as to what specifically the mark of the beast symbolized in the experience of the first century church, in other words, how would they understand that phrase? It is the number of a man and it's, his number is 666. And this is where you guys are all like, okay, what's he going to do with this? And I'm just going to say, hey, we all have to you know, read the commentaries, look through the 15 or so possible interpretations that have been put forward as to what that means uh, and determine what is best. Uh, you know, perhaps 666 is symbolic for creaturely imperfection. You know, the perfect divine would be symbolized by 777, and this is 666. Uh, perhaps it spells Nero using an ancient uh, numerical code called Gematria. In other words, the author is sort of saying, you know who I'm talking about. Or maybe it's one of a long list of other explanations put forward over the years. And I would just say to you, I don't have some kind of inside information to tell you, oh yeah, I know, it's definitely this one. John clearly knew what he was talking about. And he seemed to expect his original readers to pick up on it as well. You see that language, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. In other words, you know who I'm talking about. But now, as we come to the text thousands of years later, his meaning is not as clear. Now, we can probably narrow it down to a few of the most plausible suggestions, but I'm really not sure which one is right, and I don't think it really matters all that much. As I said before, the basic meaning of the mark of the beast is clear. To receive the mark of the beast means to give the beast your allegiance, your worship, and so to belong to it. In that sense. Now, of course, this image of the false prophet compelling people to receive the mark of the beast, well, the original readers would have understood that all right. It reflected their experience as first century Christians. It, it portrayed the fact that at the time the letter was written, the promoters, for instance, of the imperial cult, a manifestation in that day of the false prophet, were demanding that all the people in the empire worship the emperor's God, a manifestation of the beast. So to receive the mark of the beast for them was to succumb to that demand. 
Would they offer that pinch, at least later on, Kaiser Kurios? The idea was that when you gave your allegiance to the emperor's divine, you were now identified with him. You'd received his mark. And by the way, almost everyone in the empire did that. As it says in verse 16, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. The only ones who did not succumb, of course, to that deception were Christians, at least those who did not give their worship to Caesar. They would not take the mark of the beast, as it were. Rather, they bore the mark of God. They belonged to the Lamb and to his Father, and they gave their worship to him alone rather than to Caesar, regardless of the consequences. And there were consequences. We already said those who would not worship the beast, some were slain. Others had severe economic consequences. We see that indicated in verse 17 when it says that, among other things, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. But even though this vision is primarily fulfilled in the experience of first century Christians, you know, the basic principles reflected in it apply to the experience of the church in every generation. What this second vision of Revelation 13 tells us is that Satan is actively working throughout this present evil age through his agent, the false prophet, who, though appearing harmless, uses all manner of deception to lead people into destructive false worship. Well, let's get more specific. The false prophet, this second beast, represents the activity of Satan throughout this age to promote all kinds of false teachings and false religions through various human agencies, both in the church and in the world, to lead people into giving their allegiance of their souls, that is, their worship, to some empty counterfeit of the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And indeed, according to this text, the whole world will be caught up in satanic deception of one form or another. Only those who belong to Jesus Christ will be enabled to resist this deception and give their worship to God alone. As we see in verse 16, because of their refusal to listen to the lies of the false prophets, Christians will be persecuted. So what will all this look like practically for us? You know, one of the grave mistakes I think we make as Christians is underestimating the deceptive power of Satan. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as being sort of able to spot things like false teaching fairly easily and avoid it. But you know what? I think chances are, every one of us in this room, if we were to look back on our lives and give an honest assessment of our lives, it's probable that every single person in this room would have to confess that we've been influenced by some form of deceptive teaching at some point in our lives. Haven't we? I have. And if it were not for the sovereign hand of God to keep us from doing so, we could have easily gone down a path of error that may have ultimately ended in our spiritual ruin. You see, it's important that we realize the false prophet is a very dangerous enemy indeed. As we saw from this vision and and elsewhere in Scripture, the reason the false prophet is so dangerous is that it appears harmless. 
Its attacks are covert. As John put it in his vision, it appears like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. You know, D.A. Carson unpacked this danger well, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, but he says something like this. You know, the false prophet is not going to say to you like the beast, deny Christ or else. Rather, the false prophet will say to you, I'm so glad you believe in Jesus. Let me help you understand something about him that you didn't know before, a deeper truth that you need to hear to really understand spiritual things. The false prophet, you see, isn't Satan like a roaring lion. It is Satan as an angel of light. The false prophet will be smooth and seductive and attractive. It it will be manifest in teachings that seem so right and so helpful and so good that they will be difficult to criticize and easy to accept. You know, the false prophet deceives the nations of the world and even entices people to leave the church through the propagation of a variety of false religions and philosophical ideas like worshiping the emperor's God. And each one of these has a different appeal for different people in different social and political and economic concepts. So we think of Islam and how it offers a disciplined religious and moral framework which appears to inject meaning into every area of your life. It has appeal. Or Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, they offer, seem to offer ancient wisdom, you know, tested through the ages, as well as a hope of some kind of mystical experience of transcendent reality. Or Roman Catholicism appears to offer relief for the guilty conscience if you will go through various religious rites and ceremonies performed by the church. Or the cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses claim the mantle of true Christianity. And they provide a coherent way of understanding reality as well as an identity within a a very tight-knit community of happy people. And if you don't like religions, well, you can be attracted maybe to certain philosophical systems of thought. In our day, it's you know, evolutionary naturalism, which claims the intellectual high ground. It's got science on its side, supposedly. And it appears to offer freedom from the constraints of those pesky universal moral absolutes. And you see, these are all various satanic deceptions of the same false prophet. If you don't like one, try another. Combine a few of them together. It doesn't matter to Satan because as long as it isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ who threw him down from heaven to earth, it's false and it'll lead you to the same destructive end that he faces. What about within the church? You know, this second beast, the false prophet, what it symbolizes? Well, it symbolizes uh, various cunning strategies of Satan to deceive people in the church into abandoning the true teaching of Scripture as well. You know, one of the age-old tricks of the false prophet, since the Enlightenment at least, when men began denying the supernatural, is to make the Bible with all of its stories and its miraculous events simply look silly and unrealistic. You know, people who have iPhones, can't believe that stuff anymore. 
Those are just myths from a bygone superstitious era, which are simply untenable in the modern scientific age. I mean, we just know that science has proved all that wrong. Anyone who's involved with academia or who lives or works among educated intellectuals is almost certainly going to feel the pressure of that deception. And your innate fear of man and your craving for human approval may greatly tempt you to give in to that deception and to abandon your faith in the Bible with its blatantly supernatural claims in order to adopt a more intellectually respectable worldview. Another common ploy of the false prophet within the church in our day is the deception that the Bible is morally and socially regressive and backwards. You know, the values enshrined in the scripture regarding things like sex and marriage and gender roles, well, we know now that they are so contrary to what we have determined in our modern society as being right and good. They, they just appear simply wrong. Some societal standards, which our culture defines as progressive, the Bible actually defines as sin. And as a result of that tension, you see two pressures are now brought to bear upon us as Christians. Either we are pressured to distort the clear meaning of teach of, of scripture to sort of make it fit with the new societal norms, or we're tempted by this deception to exalt ourselves over the word of God, stand as its judge, and begin to say, I like this teaching, but not that one. And that, of course, opens the door to greater and greater compromise of the Christian faith. Another common deceptive tactic of the false prophet within the church is to have professing Christians, scholars, pastors affirm, you know, the vast majority of Orthodox Christian doctrine, but make small changes to what turned out to be very important doctrines. And because there's so much doctrinal agreement, well, they, those seemingly minor changes are presented as really insignificant when really they are massive in their implications. You see this all over the church right now and various prominent self-professed evangelical scholars even in our century who have denied certain key aspects of the gospel that they don't like. They don't like propitiation, that is, the satisfaction of God's wrath or the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us or the penal substitutionary atonement that Christ was put to death by the Father for our sins. That doesn't seem fair. That seems abusive. Well, and then these deceptive adjustments to the gospel filter down into the church through books and articles and the students they train in seminary, etc. You know, perhaps more often, though, the deception of the false prophet is going to be more subtle than even that. For instance, sometimes deception will not be through overt denial or adjustments of important doctrines, but rather simply an ignoring of them. A certain key biblical truth like human sin, divine holiness, final judgment, the cross, might be affirmed in principle. They're there in the doctrinal statements, but they're just never talked about, never preached upon. 
But when an essential truth of scripture is not proclaimed, it's not taught, well, guess what? Then it doesn't have any impact on the church and might as well not be there and soon will be lost. In other cases, deception comes when the gospel is moved out to the periphery and things that are peripheral are moved to the center. So instead of the gospel being the central matter of first importance in the church, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the church becomes focused on other things, secondary matters. Mercy ministry, political activism, theological hobby horses, worship music, spiritual gifts, etc., etc. It's not that those things aren't important, but they're not of first importance. And when they are taken center stage and the gospel fades into the background, it's only a matter of time before the gospel really is backgrounded and lost. And there are so many other forms in which deception affects the church as well. You know, sometimes Christianity is just portrayed as if it were only a matter of doing what is right. And people fall into the deception of legalism. Other times it's portrayed as if it were a matter of only believing what is right. And people fall into the deception of dead orthodoxy. Or sometimes Christianity is portrayed as if it were simply a matter of outward performance of various religious duties, and so people fall into the deception of external religiosity. Finally, sometimes Christianity is portrayed as if it were simply a matter of an emotional experience. You know, if you you felt a sense of joy and warmth during an extended time of singing worship songs, or you were at a charismatic service and you seem to have experienced the power of supernatural spiritual gifts, or you were moved by a particularly penetrating sermon and you came down to the front afterwards weeping at the invitation, and therefore you must be a Christian. But that's not true. See, all of these types of deceptive portrayals of Christianity are propagated in the church and they lead to the gospel being lost or obscured in one way or another. And the result is often people living as religious hypocrites within the church or eventually leaving the church and going back into the world. Do you see, brothers and sisters, subtle, deceptive, false teaching, various kinds is a dangerous beast. It's a constant influence in the church, subtly prompting Christians to compromise their faith in the gospel, to give their worship to some empty substitute for the truth, which is powerless to save and ultimately leads to hell. So let me just quickly, as we close, answer one more question. What should we as Christians do to resist the deception of the false prophet? Let me just say three things. First, we have to keep preaching and teaching the gospel in our churches. That is, the announcement of good news about what God has done to save sinful human beings through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and that call to repent and believe in him for salvation. Paul did this over and over in his letters to the churches. Why? Because as soon as he left, they had need to be reminded of these things. As soon as the church stops continually proclaiming the gospel, they are in danger of losing it and becoming vulnerable to various deceptive counterparts. 
Indeed, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I call you, please recognize that you are a sinner and that the wages of sin is death before a holy God. But the good news is that Jesus Christ The divine son of God has died for our sins and risen again as our savior and Lord who believe in him. And if you too will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, he will save you from the punishment that you deserve for your sins. And he will give you eternal life with him as a free gift of grace. I hope you will do that. Second, we have to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. In our churches, just as Paul said and that he did in Acts 20 when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. And in this way, we ensure that the church is getting the full diet of teaching that God intended it to have. But if we start preaching and teaching selectively, well, that's not really relevant or that's a little awkward. According to what we think people need to hear then that's going to leave them spiritually malnourished and weakened and vulnerable to various distortions of Christianity. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. And then finally, we need to be on guard, on guard against the influence of deceptive teachings in our own life and in the people within our church that are coming from both within and also from without. And when we do discover that deceptive teachings are influencing our assembly, are influencing our families, are influencing our hearts, we have to do the hard thing and say, that's not right. I'm sorry, this is what the word teaches. You need to be careful there. That's hard to do. It's awkward, isn't it? We see this sort of thing, though, carried out by the apostles in almost every single letter of the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, the visions of Revelation 13, they give us a vivid picture of two of the main ways in which Satan will attack the church in these last days. He will use the intimidation of human power, the beast, and the deception of false teaching, the false prophet, in order to get us to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ and to direct our worship towards some empty counterfeit. And we know from the story of Revelation that all who succumb to his attacks will share in his utter ruin when Christ returns. But we must be overcomers. Those who overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and through the perseverance of, in faith. And if we truly belong to Jesus Christ, then he, by his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will enable us to do that very thing. Let's pray together, and if I could have the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper come up at this point. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two visions of Revelation 13, which symbolize to us the ways that Satan will attack us, Father, we thank you that you have pulled back the curtain, as it were, and help us, helped us to understand this spiritual, unseen conflict going on in the heavenlies and how Satan will seek to destroy the saints through persecution and through deception. And we pray that you would equip us through the truths proclaimed in these visions to be ready for his attacks, to be equipped to follow Christ. We pray that you would hold fast to us as we hold fast to Christ. We pray for the illumination of the Spirit, that he would help us to understand the word, that we might see counterfeits clearly. And we pray for strength of character, 
to resist the alluring and the intimidation of Satan, to compromise our faith, to walk away from him, and all the ways in which the false prophet will tell us it's okay to do so. Oh Lord, please, we know that we are in a spiritual battle. And we know that, Lord, we cannot endure it on our own. But we must stand, putting on the armor of Christ, standing firm in his strength. We pray that you would use even these two visions to help us in that regard. We pray it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.